After hearing Rory Sutherland on the Knowledge Project podcast hosted by Shane Parrish, I wondered, who is this guy, this Sutherland fellow? He sounds really interesting. Let me see if he's on YouTube. Well, I searched YouTube, and there wasn't a video of Sutherland. There was an array of videos of Sutherland. Hours of content were available. There were TED Talks, TED Med Talks, advertising talks, interviews, podcasts. It was great. I dove in. After more than 20 hours with Rory Sutherland's voice in my head, I learned many things. But broadly speaking, he talks about four big ideas. One. Creative thinking, being illogical, is hard but worth it. Two, rationality is the wrong model to use. Irrationality is a better model. Three, framing and choice architecture change decisions. Four, butterfly effects are easiest using psychology. One warning before we begin. This is just a summary of someone else's thinking. Rory dotted the landscape and I tried to connect the dots. I drew straight lines, but there was probably an instance or two where I misinterpreted things. That said, no map is a one-to-one model. If you want that, there are hours of really good stuff on YouTube. Ready? One. Rory Sutherland wants you to think different. No, that's a slogan. Mm. Rory Sutherland wants you to think in new ways about new ideas. No, that's too wordy. Rory Sutherland wants you to be illogical. Yes, that's the sweet spot. But how so? Think about Coca-Cola, says Sutherland. Here you have this 100-plus-year-old company that's weathered world wars, cola wars, and sugar wars. It's the best brand in the world. It has Warren Buffett's stamp of approval. Here's the challenge. How do you defeat Coca-Cola? A logical answer looks like this. Coke's cheap, so you need to be cheaper. Coke tastes good, so your cola would need to taste better. There's also distribution, diet, flavors, and other decisions to make. Unfortunately for you, none of these things will work, says Sutherland. There's only one drink that's bumped Coca-Cola from its state of domination. Red Bull. Sutherland says, Genuinely, Red Bull makes no rational sense whatsoever. Nobody likes the taste very much. When you research it, people hate the taste. It costs a lot of money. It comes in a tiny can. Logically, an off taste shouldn't help, but but it does. We associate things that don't taste normal as having some sort of extra essence to it. It's why we want our cleaners to smell slightly repungent. Sutherland said, If it smells a bit like crap to me, it must be a bastard to the fly. That's why irrationality makes sense. You can't make Coca-Cola better than Coca-Cola. You have to be different. But weird ideas don't get much support. Sutherland says, When solving problems, we are biased toward certain solutions and against other ones. Part of this stems from our reliance on what Rory calls a dangerous technology, the spreadsheet. This innovation allowed for calculation, and it's given disproportionate power to anybody who can actually contrive a metric that is numerically expressible, says Sutherland. The problem is that not all things that matter to people are numerically expressible in the first place. Spreadsheets are to adults like blankets are to children. They comfort us against what we fear, being wrong or monsters in the closet. We may be wrong, but at least we were rational and precise. Here's another question. How do you make transportation better? Rory loves to rail against trains. He thinks people focus on the wrong thing. This starts with spreadsheet infestation. 
Quote, it's much easier to have a metric for how fast a train is versus how comfortable it is or how enjoyable the journey is. End quote. Time is an easier measure than pleasure, yet they are not equal. A two-hour flight in the middle of the last row of coach is worse than a six-hour flight in first class. The same is true for train rides. Sutherland says, it doesn't matter if your journey is three hours or two and a half of its useful time. And there is no aircraft as fast as a sleeper train. Plus, faster has to fight physics. Tracks need laid and maintained. Engines need oil and toil. Cars need cooled as a rule. Psychology, though, is pliable. Which would you prefer? A two and a half hour train ride without Wi-Fi or a three hour train ride with Wi-Fi? Sutherland wants Wi-Fi, a seat, and a table. He says, what really annoys me is that they make trains faster, like the high-speed link through Kent, for example, but there are a few tables on those trains. If I don't have a table, then I can't use my laptop. I can't have a cup of coffee. I can't have a newspaper. The whole advantage of the train has been practically eradicated. These answers are so obvious, they've been memed. There's images of Maslow's hierarchy floating around where Wi-Fi and battery have superseded the psychological needs that people have. Wi-Fi is like bacon. It makes everything better. That's an easy comparison. Coming up with really different things like Red Bull is more difficult. And we suck at figuring out opportunity costs like these. Sutherland was at the Royal Automobile Club to meet someone and recounted the story this way. I asked him, how much does it cost to join the club? And he said it was 1,500 pounds a year. I said, God, that's incredibly expensive. But on the other hand, as an alternative to buying a flat in London, it's about half the price of the council tax. You can stay there for eight pounds a night. It's got a swimming pool, a Turkish bath, three restaurants, two bars, a garden, and a staff of 20. Nobody ever looks, do I join a flat or do I join a club? Because that's a little too wide a set to compare. Netflix CEO Reed Hastings understands opportunity costs like this. When asked what his competition was, Hastings said, sleep. This surprised people because, as Sutherland says, that's a little too wide to set the comparative net. Sutherland has another story about this this time involving his wife. My wife doesn't like this, that is the way Sutherland thinks, because she sent me out to buy a fat toaster and I came back with a bread slicing machine instead on the argument that we didn't need a fatter toaster, we needed thinner bread. And then Sutherland uh, goes on to say in another talk, it's amazing to me how bad at this exercise we are, yet this is how we get Red Bull and better trains. It's also the antithesis of the spreadsheet. One of the reasons stupid or pig-headed people do well, and when they do well, they do really well, is because they are ignoring all of the category norms everybody else thinks are important, and they're emphasizing something completely different. It's logical to be illogical. Small ideas can have large effects. We just need to think this way, says Sutherland. Quote, I don't think there's any huge amount of intelligence required to look at the world through different lenses. The difficulty lies in that you have to abandon four or five assumptions about the world simultaneously. That's what probably makes it difficult. And then in another interview, Sutherland said, I like to think of myself as being involved with the indecision-making process. The first way to add value is to say, don't assume it's like this. It might be like that. Rory Sutherland has an advantage. He's got career capital in an industry that values creativity. Organizations typically incentivize mistake avoidance over creative genius. Sutherland says, it's much easier to get fired for being illogical than unimaginative. If you pretend economists are right, you'll never get fired. But equally, you'll never discover anything that's interesting. Organizations are like ecosystems. They reward certain behaviors and penalize others. A cost-benefit analysis appears thorough and thoughtful. Your boss will read it, nod, 
Ignore the parts they fail to grasp and say things like, hmm, and yes, yes, yes. This may be fine, but as Sutherland wonders, did you cast your net wide enough? And what do those numbers you came up with really mean? Sutherland says, Certainly there's a problem with numbers in that there are sophisticated things in life that we all understand perfectly well when verbally described. Should psychology be constrained by math? I mean, who has the better understanding of human behavior? Shakespeare or Eugene Fama? How do you circumvent this? How do you think creatively? You have to, says Sutherland, quote, give permission for people to be a bit weird. A good manager encourages many small digital experiments and takes the blame when they don't work. And this is getting a lot easier thanks to technology. Managers can cultivate creative thinking with better incentive structures. As Sutherland likes to say, quote, no one got fired for buying IBM. Conventional failure has few repercussions. Professional sports are filled with these head coaches. If people fail in unconventional ways, they lose their jobs. Sutherland calls this asymmetrical reward mechanism an essential problem of organizations. Creativity is many things, but it's not a silver bullet. There will be bad ideas. Sutherland still has bad ideas, but they're allowed. He says, The most vital thing in an ad agency is you have a culture where it's okay to fail or be silly. Creating a culture wherein you can still make stupid suggestions and still get promoted. And then in another interview, Give permission to test counterintuitive things. If you want new ideas, be irrational, test odd things, and cast a wide net. You'll never know what you may catch. 2. Drinking the spreadsheet Kool-Aid leads to causality hallucinations. Life isn't cause and effect, and even if it were, we may not pay attention. If we were homo economicus, then a change in the weather would lead to a change in the wardrobe. Plummeting stock, stocks would lead to buying, not selling. We may think we are, but we are not homo economicus. Homo economicus is the species invented by Nobel Prize winner Richard Thaler. It's the person at the perfect weight, with the optimal savings, and one who strides gaily and daily for their 10,000 steps. This species is one that not only thinks that time is money, but disagrees with Rory about longer but more enjoyable train rides because they know how much productivity is lost. Rory kindly disagrees and says, What you have to realize is that most human behavior does not follow physical laws. And, Marketing is the science of knowing what economists are wrong about. And, Consumer capitalism is like the Galapagos Islands for understanding human behavior. We must move past standard economic theory and physics precision. Spreadsheet cells don't have elbow room. Sutherland says, That does not mean that changing human behavior does not involve science. What it means is it's a different kind of science. It's less like physics and more like climatology. We need to study something different rather than study nothing at all. Sutherland compares psychology to technology. Thought is code. The rational agent model implies that code is buggy. But it is what it is. One example from another Nobel Prize winner, Daniel Kahneman, is ease of remembering. People tend to equate ease of recall with accuracy. If asked about the value of international trade deals, your opinion will mostly be based off what comes to mind. The worker who has lost his job will have one point of view, the person with no relation to the company, another. Rare is the person who says, I don't know. Why is that? International trade is a huge issue. It's an idea that circles the world like a spool of thread around a globe. It's complicated, but we don't say that. Instead, we take the easy way out 
and believe that what comes to mind is the answer. Kahneman has an acronym for this idea, W-Y-S-I-A-T-S. What you see is all there is. This system isn't good or bad, it, it just is. When Gerd Geiger Enzer asked German students to identify which city is larger, Detroit or Milwaukee, they largely guessed correctly. Americans did not. I recognize that as a good heuristic, writes Geiger Enzer. That's our code, faulty as it may be. Sutherland wants people to understand that. In one talk he said, quote, My first very simple and important point to make is psychology is technology. As you get better understanding these properties, technology gets better. People are complicated. Here's how. We tend to be satisficers rather than maximizers. We usually choose good enough results. Sutherland says, Most real-life decisions aren't like archery. Aim for the 10. If you just miss, you get a 9. If you miss that, you get an 8. Most real-life decisions are more like darts. If you aren't very good at darts, aim for the southwest corner of the board. You won't get a triple 20, but you won't get a 1 or a 5. The average score is better. This is called satisficing. And then another interview he says, We are descended from people, whatever their other faults, who avoided making really, really shitty choices. People pay a premium for brands not because they think brand B is better than brand A, but because they're more certain it's good. It's less likely to be terrible. It's insurance against disappointment. When we buy brands, we buy assurance. During the early days of the MP3 player, there were as many devices as options for illegally downloading the music for those devices. It was great, but I couldn't understand why Apple products were so popular. There was no logical answer for it. Apple wasn't the behemoth they were today, but their brand was still strong. The iPod was uh, something that satisficed. Sutherland again. The idea is that when you make decisions in an uncertain setting, you have to care about not only the expected outcome, but also about the possible variance. We'll pay a premium not only for better, but for less likely to be terrible. That seems to be an important thing to understand when analyzing decision making. I recognize this as an iPhone owner and as a MacBook Air owner. There are probably better phones or computers than the one that I have, but I don't want to take the time to learn a new operating system and research brands in an attempt to maximize my experience. I'll satisfy instead. Here's another. Why is Airbnb a billion-dollar company, but no one talks about Craigslist rooms? It wasn't always this way. During their early days, the Airbnb founders wrote a script to post rentals on Craigslist, too. At some point, Airbnb became less likely to be terrible than Craigslist listings. Sutherland says, Once you understand the perfectly sensible evolutionary instinct to satisfy, then the preference for brands is not irrational at all. I will pay a premium as a form of insurance for the reduced likelihood that this product is appalling. Satisficing and maximizing are domain-dependent. My wife maximizes family vacation plans while she satisfies family dinner plans. I'll maximize my writing, but satisfies the online hosting. Sutherland says, If you're an expert in a field, you are a maximizer. Your car is Teutonic, you listen to relatively obscure indie music, you wear niche clothing brands, like those funny jeans with a wiggle on them. You eat at restaurants you have learned about through the recommendation or reviews of others, and go on holidays somewhere other than Spain, France, or the USA. The maximizer seeks to find the very best of everything, and uses his consumption choices to define himself or herself apart from other people. But, but great brands are built around people satisficing. They're built around satisfies, sirs. Sutherland also says, 
To be great, you need a few rich folks and a few poor folks, a few oldies and some young people. Nike's extension of their brand belief to all sexes and ages is not a cop-out. It's a proof of the brand's greatness. As Andy Warhol said of Coca-Cola, the great thing about Coke is that the president of the USA drinks the same Coke as the bum in the street. And then in another interview, is Red Bull an energy drink or a mixer? What's the user imagery of Amazon? Who is a typical Google user? What makes Google better? The fact that we cannot answer these questions simply would typically be considered a flaw. But they're not. That's how great brands are built. Great brands are built around people who satisfy. We use clues for decision making. They can be internal. I recognize that. They can be external. Let's follow the crowd. They can be aspiring. I'll maximize. They can be avoiding. I'll satisfy. Sutherland's goal is to get people to think in these terms. That means we also need to understand how people rationalize. Just as satisficing and maximizing are two important parts to understand people's behavior, we also have to understand how people rationalize. We like to think of ourselves as more wise and not so whimsical, but that may not be right. In his conversation with Rory, Danny Kahneman said this, When you need information that you don't have, you usually aren't aware that you need it. If you have partial information about something, you will make the best story possible out of the information you have, and your confidence will be determined by the coherence of that story. What Kahneman has found in research, Sutherland has found in people's minds and mouths. Take toothpaste, for example. Sutherland said, Why do we prefer stripy toothpaste? When you think about it, once you put the toothpaste in your mouth, you mix it all up. Why does it need to be stripy? The strangest thing on the web is, there are hundreds of articles saying how they make the stripes in toothpaste, but there's no article saying why. All those materials, the red and the blue and the white, get mixed up in your mouth. It's completely pointless. Why do you do it? Something about the human brain just thinks, if there are three different colors, it's easier to believe that the toothpaste is doing three different things. Banishes plaque, freshens breath, eliminates cavities. Because there are three colors, I find it easier to believe that this thing is doing three totally different things. That's one way we rationalize. Google, Sutherland thinks, does another. Because Google began offering only a single search bar on a simple web page, people assumed that they were better at search. Sutherland said, People believe something that only does one thing is better at that one thing than something that does that thing and something else. It's called gold delusion. Sutherland often quotes uh, some Bob Dylan lyrics in his uh, talks, and he says, People seldom do what they believe in. They do what's convenient. Then they repent. We can rationalize almost anything, and have done so for hundreds of years. Benjamin Franklin praised our reasonability and wrote, since it enables one to find or make a reason for everything one has a mind to do. Kahneman took this thinking, researched it, and wrote a book about it, How We Think Fast and Slow. He told Sutherland, If I say 2 plus 2, a number comes to mind. You didn't ask for it, it just came. The capital of France. A word comes to mind. If I say a nasty word like crime, you have an emotion. You didn't ask for it. Nothing deliberate. It just happens. Most beliefs come from childhood, but we build arguments. We pretend that we got our conclusions from arguments, when in many cases, it isn't true. Sutherland also likes the quote from George Lowenstein, Just as we have a sex drive and a food drive, we have a sense-making drive. Academic researchers and business executives study and exploit the scap. They know it's there because if you change small things, the behavior changes. Here's an example. Sutherland was once at a nice hotel. To celebrate the season, the hotel commissioned a nice sculpture in their lobby. 
It would be the cherry on top of the Sunday of a great stay. Only things didn't work out that way. What really mattered for the guests that were surveyed was check-in. If guests had a great check-in experience, a short line, a kind staff, a ready room, they rated their entire stay as better. The music sounded better, the room was cleaner, the ice sculpture was more beautiful, and the food was delightful. However, if the check-in experience was bad, then the entire trip was shit. As Sutherland says, Everything we judge is based on our prior expectation. The idea that there is just this thing called utility, which is produced in a factory and is completely disassociated from the context in which the thing is consumed, is not happening. The price of things is not an absolute. We don't have an internal measure of pleasure against which we measure our expenditure. It's completely relative. That is, we rationalize. If check-in is disorganized, then the room can't be that nice. Stories color in the details and allow a smell of certainty. This is part of the reason Uber succeeded. The app created a chance for stories and for certainty. Sutherland says, The nature of a weight is not just dependent on its numerical quantity, its duration, but the level of uncertainty you experience during that weight. The human brain doesn't care so much about duration as it does about certainty. Uber lets us make up stories about where our cab was. What makes Uber different is that when you phone for a taxi, in between the phone call and the taxi arriving, you enter the twilight zone of uncertainty. Where is he? Why isn't he here yet? They said five minutes. I can't see him. Maybe he's outside. Should we go outside and have a look? What if he's left? And Sutherland goes on to explain how this uncertainty uh, creates this discomfort. But with Uber, you just look at the map and you see how far away the driver is. And voila, no more certain uncertainty. Companies with cheaper products need to account for this storytelling nature too. One of our simple and useful but not perfect heuristics is that expensive is better. That's not always true. Sutherland jokes that a king of yore would give you half his land for a flat screen television. Things get better and cheaper. Homo economicus celebrates this. We do not. Instead we think, as Sutherland says, there must be something wrong here. Even though that product seems better, if it's cheaper, that must mean it's shit in some dimension I don't currently understand. And then in another interview, Marketing is much more complicated than people realize. It's not only justifying a higher price, but it may also be about destigmatizing a lower price. Sutherland praises the way low-cost airlines have approached this. They fill in the story for us. It's cheaper because there's less. Southwest Airlines has an advertisement that says, No Hidden Fee Zone, and that's the explanation for the price. The implication is that other airlines are more expensive because they have hidden fees, whereas Southwest is upfront about it. They tell you a story. And this isn't just about dollars, it's about making sense, too. Sutherland recalls taking a flight, and rather than unloading at the gate, the passengers unloaded via stairs and then took a bus into the terminal. And in Sutherland's words, Every single passenger on a plane in those conditions generally goes, Aw, oh, shit, I've been shortchanged here. I kind of paid you for that service. The least you can do is at least connect me to a proper gate with a tube. Now you just dump me on the tarmac and put me on a bloody bus. Partially because bus automatically creates the assumption of second-bestness in our minds. However, Sutherland had a very insightful pilot. After announcing the change, he said that the bus would take the passengers straight to passport control, so they wouldn't have far to walk with their bags. And then in Sutherland's words again, Hold on. That's always true, isn't it? When you get a bus, it takes you right next to passport control so you don't have to schlep past 700 yards of duty-free shops in order to actually get to your luggage, and then get to the arrival zone. The facts are the same, but the rationalizing is what makes an experience great. We're not. 
Sutherland said, Here's a case where you can take something that's bad, redirect our attention to the good of it, and now we think it's good. Another example is the Nespresso machine. Sutherland has one, and he says he can't believe that he uses it so much, but it makes sense once you think about it. Objectively, they are insanely expensive. If you had to buy Nespresso coffee in a jar like Nescafe per equivalent dosage of caffeine, a jar of Nespresso would cost about 60 pounds. You'd look at that on the shelf and you'd go, that's insane, I could buy Nescafe for only 5 or 6 euros. But it doesn't come in a jar, it comes in a little pod. So the frame of reference isn't Nescafe, it's a coffee shop. You think, in the coffee shop I'd be paying £1.20, this little pod cost me 28 cents, this machine is practically making me money. Our perception of things is relative. What you compare something to matters much more whether the thing is expensive or not. We aren't rational beings, but, but we don't need to be. Rules of thumb work for a lot of things. For other decisions, we satisfice to avoid downsize and rationalize after the fact. Producers can use this information to help people tell themselves these stories. This is often done through good framing. Three. Sutherland is a framing enthusiast. Uh, this is some of the things that he said in his interviews. The power of reframing things cannot be overstated. And the interface fundamentally determines the behavior. And if you make making a decision really difficult, people do two things. They either decide really badly or they don't do anything at all. And the idea that we value things objectively free of the context and expectation which we bring to them is completely wrong. What does that look like? Rory says to imagine a restaurant with great food but that's had a sewage backup and the odor is wafting through the restaurant. No matter how good the food is, you aren't eating there tonight. Even if the maitre d' offered you half off, you'd back off. We can frame good things in bad ways to change behavior. Two Australian radio personalities convinced Ed Sheeran to help them with a bit. The plan was to offer a peep show starring Sheeran. One guy would hawk the show on the sidewalk, the other would take the money and guide people to their seats for the 30-minute peep. It took them two hours to get anyone interested. Sutherland said, quote, It doesn't matter how good your product is if your marketing is terrible. An Ed Sheeran peep is great for a radio stunt, but horrible for fans who want to see him perform. Another example of good and bad framing is dietary guidelines. Successful diets prioritize easy, not logical decisions. Sutherland says, If you're a dietary advisor or nutritionist, the logical thing to say is, this is your caloric intake for the day and you should stick to that. That's a very difficult thing to do because it requires you to invoke System 2 to eat meals that are smaller than the one you'd want to eat. And, it's tiring, cognitively, difficult, and requires a huge amount of self-policing. If you just say, don't eat carbohydrates, once a week you go to a shop and don't buy carbohydrates. You need no extra self-control because there aren't any carbohydrates in the house. Forget about counting units, says Sutherland. It's not hard to do, but it's hard to start. Make it easier and don't count at all. With abstinence, you can't con yourself, he says. And if you're trying to avoid alcohol, he asks, what are you supposed to count when you're already a bit pissed? Rory likes the work that Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein write about in the book Nudge. For people that get worked up about being nudged in libertarian paternalism and being told what to do, Sutherland has this to say. Nudging can be nothing more than the act of painting white lines in the middle of the road, or painting a pattern in a car park so that people all park in a way which allows more cars to fit into a given space, 
you know, as an absolutely purist libertarian, I could get really angry and say, I hate car parking lines because they interfere with my right to park at the diagonal. But you'd have to be a fairly deranged libertarian purist to take that view to protest against the lines in car parks. Fowler and Sunstein address this in their book. Everything has some design. Why not be thoughtful about it? Sutherland suggests designs for people's psychology and said, if you look at the world of physical design, I drove here today and I steered the car with my hands. Every single car I know, including Formula One cars, has a steering wheel. Now our hands didn't evolve to steer cars. What we do very sensibly is we design cars in such a way as some evolved equipment that we have is quite good at steering, which is why nobody's attempting to devise an interface where you steer your car with your nose. How do people actually make decisions? In business, they use spreadsheets. We buy fat toasters rather than consider bread slicers. We often satisfy and rationalize even more. Those are the things to consider, and focusing matters too. As Sutherland observed about being on the airplane that unloaded to a bus, focusing matters. Danny Kahneman said this to Sutherland, Nothing in life is as important as you think it is while you're thinking about it, so just thinking about anything makes it look bigger. And in another talk, Sutherland rephrased that idea this way, If you can change people's focus, attention, and their status currency so they derive more pleasure from what already exists rather than from what has to be created to satiate their demands, you can essentially increase wealth without increasing consumption. Think about this. If we change the way that people look at a situation, it changes how they feel about it. And what does it take to change the way people look at a situation? Almost nothing. Just words. Four words will sometimes be all that you need. When Sutherland helped a company figure out why people didn't renew their subscriptions, they found that four words increased renewals by 30%. Those four words? Most people like you. This design is called choice architecture. This is what Sutherland has said. In many cases, instead of persuasion, you want to ask, how can we change the situation to make it easier for people to do what we want them to do? And, when you want to change behavior, try to change the environment rather than try to persuade people. And, I think the first rule of marketing is to make a decision easy to make, and that means clarity of choice and lack of anxiety. Sutherland says that we are blind to the path-dependent nature of decision-making. How did you decide on your last meal? Often we choose how to eat, not want to eat. Stay in or go out, cook or be fed, fast or slow. Those are really the initial questions, not Italian or Greek. The same thing is true for buying houses, says Sutherland. When we buy a property, the order in which we look at things matters. Location is the highest priority. Next, in the UK, it might be the number of bedrooms it has. In the US, it might be floor area by square footage. We might then look at the size of the garden, a few other features, and whether or not it has a pool. But architecture generally comes pretty low down the list. We only look at architectural aesthetics when we've got down to a final selection of four or five. Rory recalled a business example of this too, and it was about the early days of Amazon. He said that many of his colleagues thought Barnes & Noble would easily catch up once they figured out online distribution. And Rory said that, no, it was more like the restaurant example. Once you decide on a way to do something, then certain dominoes are going to follow after that. Sutherland said, what those people weren't realizing was path dependency, which is about how I want a book, or I hear about a book, or someone mentions a book where I read about a book, or I think about a book, or my course professor tells me I need a book. The next decision is which channel should I buy it in? Shall I go to a shop or shall I go online? And then the third decision is that channel. Which branch shall I go to? Now, 
Within the bookshop channel, Barnes & Noble was strong. But once you've made the decision that you're buying that book online, the strongest brand in the online channel was Amazon. Amazon still benefits from this path-dependent thinking. If I want to buy something online, I check Amazon rather than if my local Walmart could deliver it cheaper, quicker, or both. That is, I'm satisficing. This works because people prefer to adapt to something rather than work for something. Some of the other ways that we can design choices is that people tend to choose the middle of three options. Sutherland says, there are huge, huge comparative forces in how we actually exercise judgment. People also tend to do what others also do. Sutherland says, making something seem like a social norm massively decreases the stigma of doing it yourself. And people also tend to believe that complicated things do more. Sutherland says, because it's complicated, we think it's really good. The way people see a situation affects how people believe in a situation and how they will act in a situation. Sutherland says, the context, the medium, and the interface within which a decision is taken may have a far greater effect on the decision we make than the long-term consequences of that decision. This can be incredibly helpful to think about framing this way. And good framing has butterfly effects. Four. Sutherland is searching for butterflies. This is what marketing is. Add value through intangible means. Small inputs, large effects. Find the four words that have a 30% increase. This is what he said. One of the brilliant things to look for in marketing is disproportionality. How very, very small things have a huge effect. And that's the glorious thing about marketing. You can create glorious delight and memorability and distinction with utterly trivial levels of expenditure. And intangible value is a very fine substitute for limited resources in the creation of things. Think of the hamburger, says Sutherland. Start with the meat, add a bun, that's one kind of burger. Then add lettuce, tomato, Heinz 57, and a french fried potato, a big kosher pickle, and a cold draft beer, and that's paradise. paradise. The ground beef is central, and each additional part is a complimentary good. Advertising is a complimentary good too. Sutherland says, instead of thinking, how can I persuade people to buy my product? Ask instead, what's the equivalent of the lettuce, ketchup, and bun? And we need to look in interesting places for these opportunities. Sutherland says, What we need to do as marketers is either look for things that are objectively similar but subjectively different, or things which are subjectively similar but objectively different. Too often we try to solve things with big swooping gestures, and it goes back to our spreadsheet infestation. Sutherland says, if you're a guy at the UN with a budget of 200 million, it's beneath your dignity. It's insignificant. It doesn't satisfy you, your own self-love to say, the solution to poverty is free lentils. You always look for a big grandstanding heroic thing. As we saw in the irrational people section, it's a mistake to think linearly. Big inputs do not always equal big outputs. Sutherland says that the Eurostar is an example of this mistake. Engineers and politicians wanted to change a three-hour train ride to a two-hour, 30-minute train ride. That's a 16% improvement. But at what cost? Instead of making it faster, what if they made it more enjoyable? But that's hard to measure. People like spreadsheet math. However, Sutherland says there is no aircraft as fast as a sleeper train. Building more doesn't always help either. You've probably seen this in your commute. 
There's a road that's too busy, way, way too busy. Someone's going to get hurt out here. Someone decides to widen it. Work begins. Barrels sprout. Bulldozers arrive. Temporarily, congestion is worse. That's fine, you think to yourself. Once the work is done, things will be so much better. Months later, after the last equipment is rolled away, traffic is not better. Why? Because you can't build your way out of traffic congestion, making something easier to do, and more people will do it. So Sutherland says, So my tip for the day is this. Spend just as much time working on how you can reduce consumer transaction costs as you do trying to reduce manufacturing costs. End quote. So for the road issue, maybe you don't need wider roads. Maybe you need fewer cars. In a talk for Wired Health, Rory gave advice for how small changes can lead to people being a lot healthier. Start with the name of the thing, Sutherland says. If you want people not to go to the A&E, which is short for accidents and emergencies, rename the thing. Sutherland says, what you call things affects how people behave because if you create a name for something, we automatically assume it's the norm. This worked for designated drivers, actually, says Sutherland. Once that term was introduced via television sitcoms, it joined the lexicon and more people considered it a norm. Another example for health is multicolored pills. Filled but unfinished antibiotic prescriptions are troublesome. Rory thinks that these prescriptions should be filled in two colors. Then pharmacists can tell people, finish the 18 blue ones, then take the six red ones. Sutherland goes on to explain, the likelihood that people will get to the end is much greater when there is a milestone somewhere in the middle. Sutherland calls these butterfly effects mono-ideas, minimalist, oblique, non-obvious interventions. He says, Minor irritations are really worth focusing on because, unlike things like healthcare, they're relatively cheap to solve and the difference they make to the quality of life may be enormous. But these things aren't obvious. You have to look for them in different places. Sutherland says, Test strange things, and when they succeed, you know something nobody else does, and that's what's really valuable in business. And this way of thinking is fertile, Sutherland says. It's hard to make an airplane ten times faster, but you can make a hotel ten times cooler than another hotel for a fraction of the price. And butterfly effects are easier now than ever before, thanks to the computer in your pocket. This is key because timing matters too. Sutherland says, imagine you have the option to drive or take the train. The decision point isn't once the car is packed and you decide to drive to the train station or your destination. The decision point is well before that. Once people are packed in a car, the inertia to make the car journey is too great. Sutherland says, in fact, if you have kids and already packed them up in the car with seven tons of shit, the decision is already made for you. What if instead you make the decision earlier? Then that same asymmetry doesn't apply. If you use technology to change the place people make the decision, the decisions will change. The best billboards, says Sutherland, are the ones that change. In one talk, he showed a billboard advertising travel and points out that it changes throughout the day and the year. During the afternoon rush hour, it notes that the train doesn't stop here and that the passengers are closer to their homes. Around the holidays, it reminds you to visit your mom. Different messages with different means at different moments change momentums. Here's another example you've seen before. Please shower before swimming. My local YMCA has this sign on the pool deck, whereas this sign should be in the locker room. On the pool deck, I think, well, I'm about to get wet anyways. I'll just jump in and the pool will wash everything away. But in the locker room, I think, well, I'm going to get wet swimming, so I'll just rinse off first. Putting the message at the wrong place, says Sutherland, is a disaster. 
On my blog, thewaiterspad.com, I also have a post about the books that Sutherland recommends, and we won't elaborate on that here, but you can go to thewaiterspad.com to see what books and other things Sutherland suggests you read. To recap, one, creative thinking, illogical thinking is hard but worth it. Two, rationality is the wrong model to use for people. Irrationality is better. Understand how people maximize, how they satisfice, and how they rationalize after the fact. Three, framing and choice architecture can change decisions. There's a certain path dependency, such as how to eat rather than what to eat. And four, butterfly effects are easiest using psychology. If you can change a few simple words, you can change decisions that have large effects. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes.